Welcome to the Non-Breaking Space Show. From Austin, Texas, I'm Christopher Schmidt. And on today's show, we talk with Steve Portugal. Steve Portugal is the founder and principal of Portugal Consulting, a boutique firm that brings together user research, design, and business strategy. Steve is the author of Interviewing Users, How to Uncover Compelling Insights, as well as the author of Doorbells, Danger, and Dead Batteries, User Research War Stories. Before we get started, some things I'd like you to know. Make plans for CSS DevConf 2017. Join Chris Coyer, Wes Boss, Mina Markham, Harry Roberts, Sarah Dresner, Estelle Weil, and many more in New Orleans this October. Early bird tickets are on sale at cssdevconf.com. UX Design Newsletter is a weekly list of articles, tutorials, and inspiration handpicked by yours truly. Sign up at uxdesignnewsletter.com and have the best links of the week sent to your email. Set it and forget it with the Non-Breaking Space Show newsletter. Whenever a new show is ready, be prepared and be notified in your inbox by signing up at newsletter.nonbreakingspace.tv. Also, you can find show notes and links discussed in today's episode with Steve Portugal at nonbreakingspace.tv. Be sure to follow me on Twitter at Teleject, T-E-L-E-J-E-C-T. As always, if you like the show, please tell others to look for it on iTunes. That helps us spread the word immensely. Now, on with the show. Well, thank you, Steve, for, for joining us today. So uh, for this is a collection of stories that you collected over the years. Um, and actually, the, the earliest one I could find was like that you, that you mentioned was that you, you published uh, was in uh, 2012, I believe it was. Uh, what made you decide to start like publishing by these uh, these stories from the field well yeah you know i it's something i've been looking to do for a long long time um i, I think i describe in the book the experience of being at a bar at a conference and uh sort of being early in my career and and meeting other people just casually having those conversations like you do uh and people started telling stories of just oh this happened oh this happened and it was it was like a little moment, but it was kind of profound. I realized, oh, there's this, there's this thing that we don't talk about. That it's not just me that this happens. Like this is what the professional community experiences. If you do this stuff for a little while, even you start to have weird and interesting things happen. And it was entertaining as anything just to be talking about this stuff. And I thought, oh, there's an opportunity to collect these. And I didn't really know what that would look like. I think I proposed a couple of conference panels where we would just get together and talk about these things, and that didn't happen. Um, and so, you know, we talked up front about interviewing users, my first book, and one of the things that Rosenfeld Media, you know, encourages is kind of having a book that grows beyond the printed form. I mean, that just represents a, a, a point in time. And I started to think, oh, th that one of the things I want to tell people about research is you can learn to do it uh, better. You can read this book and you can practice it. But one thing to do is just tell stories to other people about what happened. And I thought, okay, I'm going to create a repository for that. Uh, and so as interviewing users is kind of going to press, you know, there's a link in that book. I realized, oh, that link needs to have stuff there so that when the book comes out and people type that, that URL in, uh, they're going to get to some amount of stories, and then that will start to generate more more interest. Um, 
so I worked pretty actively to solicit stories. I mean, you know, it's one thing to have a, a repository for it, but they don't just come over the transom, as they say. You've kind of got to go and ask people like, hey, here's this project. Here's the goal. These are stories about researchers, not about the research. Do you have anything to share? Uh, and so right back in whenever that was, I just spent what seemed like a long time just really, you know, beating the bushes for stories. And, you know, now that now I think it's a little easier to get stories because of because many, many people have them. But, um, you know, it, it's in book form. It's kind of established. It is a thing. Uh, so it's a little it's a little easier now. But uh, I'd love to see it continue. I'd love to see it sort of be self-sustaining. It doesn't need to be my archive, but I'd like to see people just being willing to share stories with each other for the value that that, that can bring. Um, so, you know, I, I'm leading that, of course, as part of these kinds of conversations and, and things I'm doing around the book. But uh, ideally, people pick this up and think, oh, yeah, we should have a little lunch meetup at my company or I should go have coffee with somebody in the community and just just share stories because I think there's so much that can happen from that. Right. I mean, it seems like it's like a, it's an oral education, most of the part, like these stories that they're passed down because it's, you know, it's, you know, it's things that you don't really find in a how-to book, you know, like your instructional book is like, Hey, these are, you know, maybe like have a, have an apprentice or like master, like so, someone will tell you like, Oh, this was what you should avoid or, you know, teacher. it's not something that you would written down. So like just to have a, a physical representation of, of this and not, not just like a one-off uh, entry on someone's blog that, that collects dust, you know, the virtual dust out there that no one really reads, but just, it seems like you've uh, created this home for people to like share their user research stories. And so I think that's, you know, and uh, and you, you said like, hey, it's you know, it's a non-judgment zone, so don't worry about that. You, you can share these stories, and I feel like that's where, um, you know, our, I think uh, like from the web development side, web design side, when I talk about my book, it's just like, but like, there's still, you know, even though we say fail, it's there's still some shame involved, and people don't really want to uh, share their stories. So, um, so you, you collect all these stories, and then um, the stories. I feel like. Th- the stories themselves, they're, they're short, they're simple and sweet. What I like about them is that they are short and sweet, but uh, they also have some lessons to take away from. And I felt like, um, how, how did you determine like which ones were the best ones for the book in terms of, in terms of publishing rather than leaving some ones out? Yeah. Um, so I had this archive, maybe this, maybe it was like 75 stories or something like that. I don't know what the exact number was. Um, you know, and, and then that book publishing process is kind of interesting, right? Cause you have to write a table of contents, like an outline before you've written the book. Um, so, you know, I'd been talking about these stories in a less formal way. Um, just sort of, I've been doing some conference talks and kind of saying, Hey, here's this story or there's this topic or there's this, you know, I could see what some of the groupings were. Uh, but in writing the book, I took a much more, uh, you know, I did a lot more analysis. And that's, you know, that's kind of stuff that user researchers love, right? You're taking all these stories, you're trying to find what are the patterns, what are the themes. So I went through and I like marked them all up and just looked at the different aspects of what was happening, what were these kind of, um, you know, inflection points at which the story flipped, the inciting incident, as they say. Uh, what were some of the lessons? What were some of the contexts? So I just had this big jumble and I started trying to organizing it, tr- started trying to organize it and say, well, what are the, what are the key things that are going on here? Um, 
And so, you know, I sort of came up with a structure that was like 85% of the way there. And then I went back to the stories and started kind of slotting them in and looked at, you know, how well did they match? Um, at that point, you have a few stories that don't fit anywhere. So I kind of went back and forth with my editor, like, does the story go in? And you're like, ah, that story's okay. There were some that just didn't, they didn't fit or they didn't seem as compelling uh, uh, for the way the book was shaping up. And then, of course, the structure evolves and you realize, oh, this, it's actually about this, excuse me. Um, it's actually about this. And so now the story does, the story goes here. And then the, the thing that happened was, uh, you can see there's, oh, we're light on a couple of areas. Like there's a really important theme, but we only got one story about it. So you can't really make a chapter around that. Uh, so I had to go out and try to find some stories that would fit into some of those topics, uh, which was also really fun. Because so there's this Venn diagram I won't try to draw with my hands, but, you know, stories in the archive and stories in the book, it's they're pretty close, but there's some stories that exist only in one realm or only in the other. Um, and then as new stories come in, then, of course, that, you know, the diagram will kind of shift. Um, yeah, that was kind of the process. Do you feel like that was uh, that serves the stories better, or like do you feel like that's you know because like the whole the book writing process is kind of it's kind of uh, a weird process because like you like you have an idea for a book and then it's like well you know you have to write that table of contents like you mentioned and then you're just like oh man I'm actually crystallizing my idea and and that's kind of scary and fun at the same time so uh, do you feel like the stories are better better served uh, in going this way or do you feel like you know maybe I mean, maybe you just try to put a square peg and mm. yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I was never going to do this as a book uh, anyway. Um, and then someone said, oh, you should, you should publish them. And I thought, oh, maybe I will publish them, you know, and the motivation for that was thinking that uh, I like to think about a dusty blog post or a dusty web page. They all were online, but they were hidden because that's just kind of how like blog content sort of disappears. So I thought I had this repository, but what I had was a bunch of old blog posts. And so I thought, okay, just kind of concatenating them into print and putting them out in the world will, will give that archive sort of a physical representation and people can, can kind of experience it that way. Uh, I just imagine this as sort of the simplest project, like sequ sequencing them, Maybe writing a little bit about, uh, like when you read like a, an anthology of science fiction or something like that. There's a little bit at the beginning that says, you know, who this author is and where the story came from. But there's not, uh, there's not a structure to it. It's just concatenated. Um, and uh, that's not such an appealing prospect to book publishers. In fact, you know, I had great conversations with Lou at Rosenfeld Media. And he said, well, I think there's a, there's actually a bigger book in there, Steve, if you want to put the work in to do that. And, you know, my thought was, well, I don't want to put the work in to do that. But he, um, he you know, he was pretty, he had a good vision for it, that there was, there was more to be found here. Um, and that, that what people want to purchase uh, is the author's voice. And that that's me. So he kind of he kind of assigned me a greater role than concatenator, if that would be a role. Um, and 
And, you know, again, I kind of resisted that. But once I started doing it, once I saw what these groupings were and I realized I could make an over, you know, every chapter deals with a theme, but it, it starts with an essay by me about that theme with some. Well, they're all different. They kind of pull from pop culture. They pull from science. They pull from my own research experience and they kind of set up the frame of those those stories. Um, and then there's takeaways for each of them. So. You know, your question was, are the stories better served? I've always felt like the, the, the stories themselves were like every time I would get a story and publish it, I felt like, oh, this archive, this 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 gestalt thing, the 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 sum of all these stories was getting better and better and better as they were kind of just, you know, uh, adhering around to this roughly shaped set of set of stories um, and, and that not every story needed to be oh man, that's incredible, but it still could move the collection forward. Um, so I'm sort of less concerned with the individual stories and more about what they provide collectively. And I was failing to do that with a, with the blog. Uh, it just is, it just was a, it's, it didn't have that. It didn't level up to that gestalt. Uh, I think the book does. So I think it serves the stories if that's the singular uh, if that's the 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 collective noun um i think it serves the collective noun of the stories really really well because um you can just flip through and read them but you can also pull a lot more out of them and that was that was all implicit in the blog and is now explicit uh with the book um and does it serve the stories themselves as sort of individual entities well I think so. I mean, you know, people people that wrote them are, for the most part, very excited to be part of this. So I don't think they feel like they're they were they were not served. Um, yeah, I'm just gonna as as the author of the book, I'm gonna say I'm gonna come out in favor of the uh, effort to produce it in this form. Yeah, yeah, I think um, definitely as standalone our stories, I think they they, they can. They live on their own, but I, I do like the fact that you know you mentioned that uh, you have an essay before each theme. Each chapter has like a theme, and then you have an essay before. But then you have the uh, the end, the bullet points. I guess the that the hit the, the that underscore everything. So so it's uh, taking a hold. Like you actually, I think you like you kind of like Legos in a way, if you will. Um, you know, just try to build a better uh, point with the stories, and you know that's you know what stories are about. Like using stories to tell your points, and if you have stories you know, they help sell your point better, uh, the better for that. And if there's themes involved, I think, I think that'd be better too. Um, you know, and I think the, uh, you know, and in each, and each story is different. Like, you no, know, I, I felt like, uh, and it's, and it's, a, it's, you know, in your book, you know, it's, it's your call in terms of managing which story goes to, to which, to which theme. And so, uh, yeah, I think, uh, you know, and no one's ever done a book like this. So yeah, it's, so there you go. It's awesome. So there you go. It's, it's your, your take on it. Um, I do want to take a step back and maybe uh, take a look. I do want to examine, you know, as someone not used to doing re user research or not, uh, and not, uh, you know, not in that world, you know, day to day, if you will. Uh, you mentioned earlier talking about uh, doing user interviews that you'd go out to, to determine uh, what you don't know. Like you don't know what you don't know. In terms of that, how would you, uh, what's that leap in terms of knowing? Uh, that you need to do that then like like you say like if, if a company uh needs to know that 
being able to go out and find out what they don't know. Uh, how is that usually precipitated? Like what, what usually happens in that regard? Yeah. Um, I think there's pain felt in an organization when there are decisions that need to be made, but no, um, well, I had a client that talked about it this way. He said, we have, uh, what he said, I think he said we have, he put it, I'm not going to be able to put it as well as, as he did. Uh, we have data, but no belief. It was something like that. Um, so it's not like user research of various forms is not a practice. It's, it's, it, it, uh, at many companies, it is so much far more established than, you know, back in the day when I was just a pup. I mean, it was, it was a weird thing and no one did it. Now there's lots of activities to learn about customers and their behavior and their desires and their problems and their needs. Um, but sometimes that stuff is sort of reactive and maybe tactical. Um, and I think people in companies or on teams find themselves, you know, trying to solve problems, make decisions, create consensus, you know, align around an approach or a vision. And if there's nothing underneath that, then it's sort of contentious. You either have to have someone just dictate, well, we're doing this because uh, I say, which what is that? That's known as what? Designed by Steve, um, uh, and, and not, and I'm not the Steve in that in that reference. Um, so I, I think that it's that I see that a lot. That um, and so what? What I I mean, some companies are good at kind of doing this. Sometimes they just even need some help at like how do we even say what the problem is? Like what is the question? You know, and, and sometimes I'll have these conversations where they say. Some of what I just said, right? We uh, we just struggle internally. Uh, I, had a, I had a company that was a technology ingredient company uh, that said, um, you know, our whole business is around providing quality for these certain kinds of technical experiences, like like the one that we're having now. We already kind of did some troubleshooting around quality of audio and video, and so those kinds of things. And he said, this person that I was working with said to me, we. Um, you know, we talk in the hallway about quality. We talk in meetings. It's it's kind of in everything that we do. We do not have a shared belief around what quality is. Um, so in terms of how do you market these kinds of ingredient technologies? How do you prioritize your development? Um, you know, how do you do anything when the thing that they have been making, you know, the technology they've just been innovating on for decades and decades they it's sort of implicit and you know that can get you so far but the world changes right. um you know the when they were uh, uh innovating on quality with technical communications this thing that we're doing or that anybody's watching this is doing didn't exist so uh you know that conversation changes as um uh, as new platforms become available and new behaviors become available um, so they identified that, right? We don't know how to have the conversation internally and we need some way of, um, understanding that better so that we can position our products. We can drive our development. We can, you know, figure out what innovation means. We can figure out how to message and, and, uh, how to partner. It was really something very strategic. Um, and you see that even in more, uh, so that's a very sort of big picture hand wavy one, but, um, you see it in people that have products out on the market. They have kind of a, a use case. Um, I talked earlier this year, uh, I guess, you know, 
it's it's a it's a hot topic. So it's certainly happened to me several times. I've talked to companies that are doing uh, streaming music solutions. There's many many players out there. Um, you know, we have sales numbers and number of streams and and features and so on. Um, and it's it's a it's it's a new business, but it's not. They are big businesses that are acting with a lot of sophistication and maturity as a profession. Um, but yet they have sort of, uh, you know, their beliefs about what people do and why they do it are based on, um, you know, like people that come into those companies that have worked in the music industry for a long time or people right. that have big streaming collections themselves or, you know, 48,000 MP3s that they ripped themselves. And they, the behaviors outpace their understanding. So it's, uh, you know, companies like that, I mean, in a behavior that, you know, you could pick any company that's providing that, those kinds of tools and you know, they are not able to keep up right now. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, that's, you see like, we're not Steve, like, but yeah, I would love to see what Steve would do because, you know, not to throw the money under the bus, but just as an example, like, you know, Apple music where they launched, I felt like it was just the biggest stumbling block I've seen because they, uh, the, they, they they updated it, it totally blew away uh, their previous system of iTunes Match, uh, which was totally I don't know it was I don't want to say crippled it was just crumbling, and then um, music sharing between computers was non-existent. There was a feature that you actually share between your iPhone and your laptop is totally done. But dang it, if you they didn't want you to subscribe with their front screen like right there when you launched iTunes, you need to subscribe to their music. Because then your music would come back, and then like, well, I already bought my music. <laughs> you know, why do I need a, a subscription for it? And I think they're still reeling from that. And you know, uh, you know, you, with all the players out there that you, you know, you know uh, that you know we can mention forever, as you mentioned. But yeah, but I could definitely see where that is when you ask the, the for behavior. Uh, it is a big, big important thing. So, um, but uh, yeah, I could definitely see where you actually go out and say like, oh, how. Would user research be the fact that you would go out and just, you know, in this example, just ask them how they are, are experiencing streaming music and see and talk to them for a couple hours about their their routines, or would you uh, or would user research also involve just, you know, just examining their day and and just shadowing them for a day? Those are both two good sort of uh, those are like good thumbnails of different methods, so. There's just many, many ways that you could go about doing this. And, and you know, if you're going to go spend a couple of hours with somebody, what are you going to talk about? Is it what they're doing? Uh, is it why they're doing it? Um, you know, I've done some work where we looked at people's kind of overall music consumption um, and, and their history with that. So where did it start from? What is it rooted in? How are they doing it? You know, how is live music part of it? How is, um, you know, having friendships that... It, like, how does the social network that you're part of, and I don't mean that as a technical term, but as a sociological term, how does that play into how you consume music? Um, you know, it's not surprising that music is a big part of identity, but, you know, so how do you kind of talk about those things with people? Um, so even just figuring out how to have that conversation. Um, yeah, and, you know, right, uh, you can have people kind of... Uh, there's a day in the there's a day in the life where you kind of spend the day with somebody, or there's a day in the life where you have somebody just it's kind of a question technique. You know, walk me through your day is kind of a is kind of a question. Um, there's you can inventory 
you know, inventory questions or like where you just have someone show you what they've got. Uh, I spent uh, a couple hours in somebody's basement looking at the brand new room they had built to house their CD collection, which was a new CD collection. Like and we hear about people kind of collecting vinyl right. um, as sort of a new thing, but this was someone that had um, like flushed their entire CD collection and kind of gone to MP3s and then gone to streaming and then had rediscovered and was kind of building it back up and had this this physical shrine in their house. Wow, um, it was a great example of what we didn't know that we didn't know and. Um, yeah. So, I mean, just to, to your point, like there's a lot of different ways you can kind of go at it and, you know, uh, you know, see people's behavior, ask them to talk about their behavior, ask them to explain their history, ask them to talk about expectations for future changes to their behavior. Not because that's a guarantee of what they're going to do, but because it reveals uh, sort of unspoken values and sort of mental models that they have that drive their behavior. Uh, and you can kind of, you know, depending on what you're actually trying to get at and what, you know, what's most pressing for the team, you know, you got to put together a set of methods that will address your, um, in interviewing users, I talk about the business question, which is what is it that we want to need to decide for our business? And the research question, which is what information is going to, from people will help us answer that. And then the research methods are, well, what do we actually do in order to have a perspective on that research question? Yeah. Uh, just to go back to the like, early part of this, like, uh, you know, talking about the the people in the businesses they don't know exactly what they, you know, talking about, we don't know what quality is, or we, need to, we, we don't have a firm agreement between ourselves, what the customers deem as, you know, the important issue in terms of quality. Um, and so in this day and age where, like, you can have tracking of the user, like, into, like, a granular level in terms of what they're doing. Um, and with RFID tags, and you can actually see where they're going within the store, physical space. Um, you know, it's still crucial, you know, to go out and just ask people like, what's important. You know, like, is, you know, that's you know, I find that I, I on one level, I totally understand that, and then on another totally level, it's like you have all this information, yet you just don't know how to ask the right question. And the other side is just like, it's a simple question to ask. You know, just like. Like, like, how's your day? Like, well, what are you doing with this day? And just, I feel like that's, uh, uh, it's a contradiction almost like in a way, it's just like, it's easy to understand, but also it's kind of complex in this day and age when we can track everything about a user. Yeah. Um, and what, you know, interviewing is great for is to try to understand why. Um, like, and I think some of the teams that I've talked to or do a really great job at taking their, their big data and identifying from that uh, the gaps and then, you know, filling that in. Well, so we know that people are, we found these sort of surprising behaviors or curious behaviors or ones that we want to try to change in order to accomplish some goal for our business. People are doing X when they hit our site and, and, and Y when they, with our app and, you know, that's not what we want. So what's going on there? Um, and so then, you know, yeah, how was your day? Why are you doing this? How do you use it? What is value does it bring? What would be different? What's your, you know, that starts to give you some perspective on what you're seeing in the, in the data, uh, the, 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 this big data that you can, you know, instrument. Um, and it's great to, when they can work together. It's, I don't think it's an either or. It really is a yes and. Um, and you can go the other way too, right? You can, 
um, you know, do a more open-ended interviewing kind of exploration and find these behaviors and then go to see what evidence you have for where that's happening or where it's not happening and sort of try to either prove it out or, or, you know, again, it's just triangulating from different sources. Right. Yeah. I mean, like I definitely agree. Like you definitely want those in tandem because you, know, if you, uh, you know, definitely like, you know, uh, we'll see people will say one thing and then actually do another thing. Yes. Yes. I guess that's the, the hard part is actually trying to uh, explain why humans are, are, are those type of creatures. So. And that's, that's the classic user research question, right? Is like, you know, we look at what people do, what people say, uh, what people say about what they do and what's different between those. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's another reason to go out to where people are because some of what you learn doesn't come from literally the words that come out of their mouth. It comes from the way that they say it or what they don't say or how they contradict themselves later on in the interview. Because what I would say to you in five minutes is different from what I would say to you after two hours. Um, it comes from, you know, the other member of the household that kind of like swings by and says something. It comes from what you see in their environment. Um, so you're given a lot of other kinds of cues to be able to try to answer the question that you just posed, which is like, how do, why does people's behavior differ from what their stated behavior is? And a lot of it is about, um, you know, putting forth your best face and trying to pre present yourself well to somebody. And it's fascinating when you sort of stumble on a behavior or a usage activity that you never would have thought of as something that people would want to manage other people's impressions of. But you realize, oh, your tool is actually, um, you know, inviting people to be presented as success or as fail, uh, as failures to the rest of the world. And that you're not, you, you maybe you're not empowering them to be successful in these other softer levels. And that's driving them to not do something. Um, so you can sort of dig into, right, what the data isn't telling you, but it requires sort of, listening and filtering down to these other levels to truly to really have a point of view about that i guess to, to filter out that way like the it, do you do you figure out like how many you know i was reading these stories uh, and, uh, and some people were uh you know you know as again come from someone who's from the outside looking in you know so some of the stories began like oh we're in day two of our three week study and then we're or, or we're into you know, uh, just reduced, you know, interviewing five people or whatever like that. Um, how do you determine the scope, but like to, to make sure that you have enough of this, you know, research to say like, Oh, I, I can actually make a decision now. Uh, cause one story after for the title of it was that, uh, they were in like day three of this and they are, you know, it's like, it's the first paragraph of the story. Like it's kind of being up to set, set the stage for the story. But like, you'd say like they were in a kind of dire straits a little bit. Cause like there was the first few days, uh, it was a slog. And they hadn't gone anywhere yet. Uh, any desired feedback? Like so, um, I forgot the phrase that they used, but basically, it was like we haven't uh, distilled any information. Yeah, for a client. So, so how do you know enough times? Enough time? Like, how did that person know they had something to take back to to the client, or they, or enough to take back to their office and figure it right. research it. If that's the story that I'm that I'm thinking of, it's I think the last one in by uh, Steve Sato who talks about. Uh, being in a village, I want to say in Kenya or something. And so, um, I mean, so the, the Delta between the team's life 
and the life that they were trying to understand was pretty enormous. Um, so I think you need to do more work to try to understand, uh, you know, uh, I can't remember if it was about mobile money or what it was about, but, um, if you're me, uh, or you, and we have our professional lives as we have, and we need to have some deep insight about how people are, uh, moving mobile money in villages in Africa. That's going to take more effort than to learn about, you know, how are people using streaming music? I mean, it's just, you have so much more context that is, um, that's great. You have so much more context to try to get a handle on. Uh, so they, I think, invested heavily in doing that. They sort of knew in the planning that we don't know anything. We don't even know, like, you know, how, how to meet with these people, how to talk with them. Um, you know, if you can sort of stage a project logistically, um, you know, we're going to, we can sort of envision how we're going to do it. Um, then maybe you, less is required. Um, right. But how do you learn to scope it? Um, you know, the sort of the anthropologist answer is um, you stop doing research when you start getting repetition, which is sort of a, and, and you know, maybe if you are, uh, depending on how you sort of plan these projects, maybe you can just do that. Uh, if, I mean, I work as a consultant, so I need to write a statement of work and put together a project plan and, you know, get people to commit to something. Um, so, you know, part of that, there's a lot of work in trying to understand what are the constraints? Uh, how much do we know? How much do we not want to know? Um, sometimes we need to do research in two different cities, for example, because that might be a logistical constraint. Oh, the team is all in this city, so we need to do it there. Or this city is a, um, the usage behavior is going to be really weird there because it's Los Angeles and everyone drives or it's New York and everyone commutes on the train or whatever it is. Um, so, you know, I think the planning studies over and over and over again, you start to understand what these constraints are logistically and, um, you know, how much is kind of enough. I think over time, I've started to, I've tried to do smaller studies. I mean, way back when I remember being involved in a study of 30 families and how much uh, they did printing or something. Um, and this just was a lot. It just took weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks to do it. Um, you know, I, I've, I guess two, two other points I want to make uh, around this. Um, I don't like to get drowned in the data. Like if I can't remember everyone's name or who said whatever, if I can't sort of keep my, if it's not a unit that I can sort of, I can't keep everything in my head. Like it's very rich, nuanced data that you have to go back through in, in detail. But if I can't sort of keep the structure in my head, you know, at like 15, 16 people, that's a lot of names. It's a lot of uh, anecdotes just to kind of keep your head around it. When we want to do a lot more research, then you just, then, then you should do multiple phases. Um, you know, do something, see what you've learned, see what your conclusions are, go back out. You know, it's that, it's that repeat and iterate kind of cycle. Um, and then, then another sort of adjacent point, which I think influences this issue of sort of how much is enough. Um, I know I, I hear people saying, uh, oh, I did this. I, I came back from one interview interview three, interview four, interview one, whatever it is. And here's the insights from that interview. And I think that's sort of lazy and slightly dangerous language because it says that 
an insight is something that happens in a single interview. And I think like we talked about collective nouns before, like, uh, you know, with these stories in the book, that to me is what the, where the insights come from. Like you get, you get provoked, you get things to think about, you have sort of suspicions. stuff happens from interview three and interview seven and interview two. Um, but you don't know what the insights are until you go through a more rigorous synthesis process and go back and kind of take these things apart and see what the patterns were and see what actually happened, which is different than what you remember happening. Um, so yeah, you need enough that, um, and so what happens for me is like at the three quarter mark is I start to be like some of that starts to happen anyway for me. Um, because I'm starting to kind of accumulate a bunch of, a bunch of experiences, uh, that I'm not kind of, I'm, I'm not sort of bubbling up unit insights, but they are starting to feel kind of aggregates. Um, so I think over time you start to learn what that is. Um, and it's, you know, for me, it's like numbers between eight and 16 is, is, is a lot of data, uh, when you're kind of out talking to people. Um, so like after hand waving and saying, oh, it's complicated. Like I still can give you a range that where it sort of ends up pretty often for me. Yeah. Yeah. I just, uh, I feel like that was the, um, you know, in grad school when I did uh, analysis of like trying to, to use your, you know, use your experiences as like, uh, you see, you talk to five people for, uh, when you did uh, card sorting and then by, by a fifth person, you pretty sure have a idea, do some analysis on, on what they came up with. You should have a, a good idea what to what to, to make and so you shouldn't have to like you know it's like like why five i don't know like it just it just usually happens if you go seven you probably like just waste your time sorry or you already have the information that you need to or there's something actual information to go back and before you do another phase like you mentioned so it reminds me of that uh that uh nielsen diagram that i absolutely despise that i think i think he's been showing for decades that um explains that you only need four people to do usability tests oh, yeah. um and, and and i think you know it maybe intuitively it's true but there's sort of a, a hubris in presenting that it basically shows a number of participants versus amount of insights and it, i think he kind of shows like a you know it tracks this way and then at four it flattens there's no there's no units on it it's just sort of a visual representation of uh of a rule of thumb but yet by putting in a graph, it's sort of, therefore it's provable because we have numbers around it. And yeah, so right. Five people for a card sort, you start to have a good sense of what's going on and you can kind of go back and do some analysis. Eight people in the field, depending on if you're in Kenya or if you're in three different markets in the U S or whatever your topic is, you start to have some, some handholds around this stuff. Um, it's certainly, it's not a hundred and it's not two, right? I mean, you can sort of see how it breaks at these extreme endpoints. Um, but you know, I think with experience, you start to learn how exactly to scope for this particular thing that you're dealing with. Right. Yeah. I guess the more you're out of sync culturally or, uh, you know, if you will, I just want to use that expression, like the more time you'll need to, to, to take in terms of the, to learn the, the insights. You mentioned, so. uh, yeah, I agree. But, yeah. Cool. Yeah, and I just keep on flashing back to uh, seeing Arrival and like the mm. to learn the language, the alien language, and stuff like that too. So, um, but uh, in terms of like how long it takes to learn that uh, that new language, stuff like that too. So, cool. Um, also, I think this is a good stopping point because uh, we mentioned movies. 
<laughs> so instead of uh, research, but uh, uh, the book is I want to make sure uh, doorbells, danger, and dead batteries. User research war stories. How can uh, people get this uh, book? Yeah, they can find the book at uh, Rosenfeld Media. Uh, sells this and many other books, including my first book. Um, uh, and I think I think this is true. If at Rosenfeld Media, if you buy the print, you get the digital copy uh, as well. Um, you can also go to Amazon. You can buy an Amazon. You can buy either or the the print or the, the digital copy, or you can pay twice. Um, uh, so those are kind of the two main places I think to to get it. Um, I think it's an iBook, although I have there's some discussion of that. Um, but those are the two main. Uh, on Twitter, I'm uh, at Steve Portugal. Um, on the web, I'm portugal.com. Um, yeah. You want to find me on Instagram? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. If you know my name, you can basically find me on any, any platform that I'm on. So, well, thank you so much for uh, taking time out today and really appreciate you being here. It's great to speak with you. Thank you. 